0: On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex iron from Callaway to find a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry-leading distance in the new Apex irons, and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. This kind of power, distance, and control is not supposed to feel this great. Apex is in a class by itself. New tungsten weighting in each iron fine tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set, which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player's shape. The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability, and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, Once you experience an apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer. Or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Welcome to On the Verge, Uh, today's special guest. I'm absolutely positive you've heard of before. Former Heisman Trophy winner for the Ohio State Buckeyes legendary Tennessee Titan, Eddie George. Eddie, thank you for taking the time to join me today, buddy.
1: Absolutely, man. Congratulations on your, all your success this year. Well,
0: I appreciate it. It's been, a, it's been a wild ride for me, for sure. Yeah, I
1: bet. I bet, man. So but, thank you
0: for having me. My pleasure. And when you think back to all of the things that you've had a chance to accomplish in your football career, mm-hmm. what was that one moment where you went from being a a kid mm. and dreaming to, wait a second, I think I might I might be able to do this at a high level. Where was that moment? Maybe who was a, a coach or a, a leader mm-hmm. for you that gave you the encouragement to go further than you ever thought you could before?
1: Well, um, it's funny you say that because I was spending some time today just kind of um, digging back into my history in terms of those defining moments and the um, people that were kind of guiding you through that. Mm-hmm. And mine uh, was uh, when I went to a military academy. I was mm-hmm. living in Philadelphia up until the age of 15. Uh, long story short, I wasn't doing great in school, didn't care about school, didn't value my education. All I wanted to do was play football. I wanted to go to Penn State and play running back. Uh, and win the Heisman Trophy and going to do great things uh, mm-hmm. from Penn State. That was my, my number one goal. But, but my mother uh, saw the path that I was on and it was leading to nowhere. So she sent me to Fork Union Military Academy in the middle of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, smack dab in between Charlottesville and Richmond, Virginia, sits Fork Union. And uh, my uncle went there 10 years prior to where I went. That's how she found out about it. But she didn't tell anybody about her plan, didn't tell my grandmother, my mom, my my father, my my sister, nobody. She just surprised me one day when I came home from summer school. She said, hey, you know what? Next year, you're going to go to Forky Military Academy. And I fought, and screamed, kicked. I called my aunts, my great aunts, my uncle, said she can't do this, she's gonna wreck my dream. Who's gonna see me at Fork Union Military Academy? There's nothing down there. There's nobody that's gonna see me, I knew nothing about it. So um, I go down to Fork Union my uh, my junior year uh, and uh, I came in with a little bit of an attitude, but real cocky, like okay, mm-hmm. I, 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 if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna come down here, I'm gonna start. These boys down in Virginia can't play football. I'm from, you know, <laughs> Suburban 1 football. They're the best in the Northeast. Yep. And I am a little arrogant. So I come down from Philadelphia. And I'm at that time about 6 foot, 168 pounds, soaking wet. Um, not very fast, but full, really confident in my skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, the coach, Sullivan, um, was the, the, the gentleman who was my, my, co- my coach at the time. Uh, he showed us around the campus, and he's taking us – Taking me through the, the the barracks where the cadets stay, showing me where the classes are, takes me down to the uh, SD center where this new facility that they just built, and I'm just like not impressed by any of this. I'm like, well, listen, what number can I get? I want a single digit. And he says, well, you know what? Um, if you're good enough to get a single digit, you you get that. And then he said, uh, I said, well, you know, I want to play running back, you know, which, you know when I want to start. That's 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 my goal. He says, well, if you're good enough, you can do that. You know, you shouldn't have any problems if you can beat out, you know, two of my all-state running backs. They're coming back from last year's team. They're both 6'2", 2 uh, 210 pounds, 225 pounds. They both run 4'5". And so if you're better than that, yeah, you can play. And my eyes got, got open like, oh, I got work to do. <laughs> and... um From that point on, um, I didn't play that year. I played sparingly, and I was humbled. Um, Went through a lot of growing pains in terms of uh, what real discipline looked like. I had to get tougher. You know, I was a little boy uh, wanting to uh, be somebody, but had no way or had no clear understanding of what it took to get there. Had a big dream, but no guidance, no work ethic. Um, My lesson, I guess, came from that... Winter um, when I ran track um, because he was like, oh, George, you called me rose petal. He says, you look good, <laughs> but you're fragile like a rose. Right? And I hated that. I hated that. And he says, you got to get tougher. So he forced me to run the hurdles and I hated the hurdles. I, I didn't want to run track to begin with. He says, but listen, you're not going to play basketball. You're not going to wrestle. You're going to run track in the winter and the, in spring because you have to get faster. If you are going to play football at a high level, this is what you're going to do. So I reluctantly did it, and I, I kicked the scream as usual. And he put me in this race, once um, in hurdles, and I had in the competition. This, I may have spent maybe a week doing the hurdles. So I didn't know how to do it. I'm like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? So it was just me and this other guy in the slowest heat possible. And there's two of us in the lane And the stands are packed I mean, this is a, a raucous track crowd And they, they, they're they watching intently So I get in the blocks I say, listen, I'm just going to run I'm just going to get through this And just not even care Have a real bad attitude about it And show them that, hey, you know what You're not going to make me do this So he takes off Goes to the hurdles He finishes And I'm just pacing myself through Skipping through the hurdle Finally get into the middle of the track I up my steps, I fall over and fell. And I got a, hit, got a cut on my hip and everybody starts laughing. <laughs> everybody starts laughing. And I'm standing there and I'm like, all right, I can finish this race or I can just walk off right now reluctantly. So I said, no, I'm going to finish the race. So I finished the race and I'm pissed off. I said, that will never happen to me again. No matter what I do from this point on forward. Whether I'm forced to do it or not, I'm going to put my best foot forward. And that was the moment that I think I grew up in terms of becoming an athlete. Hmm. And then the following year, um, I became the state champion in the hurdles and the 300 and the 110s um, wow. after one year of learning them because I've really put my mind to it. And, and when I realized that I could be really good was in track, actually. Um, it was a cold. It was a cold day. It was in like in March, and we were at a state um, a state uh, track meet, and it was some of the best runners in the state. And it was snowing sideways; you can barely see. Hmm. And we, it was time for us to run our heat. And I noticed that the other kids were like bundled up; they were cold. They didn't want to be out there. And I said, hmm. I said they're distracted. I said I'm used to this weather. I love I love running in the <laughs> snow. <And> this is <laughs> my type of weather. I'm That's a mother. So, uh, gun kicks off, and I just take off running. And I just had this mindset that I was not going to lose. Nothing was going to distract me. I went out there, and I won that heat. And my coach came to me and said, boy, I just saw you become a man today. And from that point on, I just took off.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. One of my my big beliefs is that you have to have early success to build the dream, Mm -hmm. get the fire stoked. But there has to be a a place where struggle comes into play to check you, Mm
1: -hmm. to make
0: sure if you're really committed, and then that grit and fire to move past, and whether it's to prove prove something to somebody, prove it to yourself, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I think that that's one of the things that are missing in today's kids is that maybe the parents slash coaches slash peer groups are trying to prevent pain and struggle so much that we forget that it's that struggle and that that burn of either not being the starter or you know check yourself you know before you're you're not ready yet to learn how to actually okay I'm good but I, I have a long way to go talk to us about that
1: I think as parents, we knew, we well, at least my generation, we, I, didn't, I grew up with nothing. Mm-hmm. And I knew w- what it was like to have nothing and to want it and to grind for it and to cry for it and to dig for it and to bleed for it. And every day was, was trying to get better every single day. And as parents, we say, well, my kids are not going to go through what I went through. And they come up, grew up a little privileged. Mm-hmm. You know, my my son grew up uh, going to golf courses and mm-hmm. flying on private jets and um, riding back of limousines and, you know, kind of experiencing that highlight between the lifestyle of, of his mother and myself. So there are elements there that says, hey, you know what? We don't want you to struggle like we did. But he has to understand and appreciate the process, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And it, it, without the struggle, it, you can't know what success is like because that's the, 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 the adversity is going to expose your character and it's going to build your character of who you really are in that moment and who you choose to be thereafter. Mm-hmm. And without that, I don't think, without the the villain, without the adversity, without resistance, you can't um, find out your true potential, which you can be. hmm So you have to embrace that villain. You have to embrace adversity. You have to embrace the struggle because that's going to be the pressure that really refines who you are and how bad you want it. So I I encourage people when you come up against a challenge and you've had some setbacks in, in terms of your journey, embrace those moments. Because that's what's gonna define you. That's the only way you're gonna get the true sense of who you are in those moments that's gonna come out and when it really counts. And it goes it transcends beyond the game of football or beyond basketball, beyond golf mm-hmm. into everyday life. And now you're going to apply those same principles, the same stories, the same uh process to what you're going through in your business life or um, Making a transition into um, the next phase of your life, whatever that's going to be, mm-hmm. the same things apply.
0: Interesting. Well, I would imagine then the next bit of struggle that you incurred was the fact that you wanted to be a Nittany Lion to the death, and you yeah. found out that you weren't going to be a Nittany Lion, and you had to go. You had to go somewhere else. How, how did that that whole thing unravel? And when you ended up going to Ohio State, obviously in another extremely awesome. Mm-hmm. S- football historically awesome football school. Mm-hmm. how did that all transpire, and how did it turn into the next dream for you?
1: Well, let me take it back a little bit because um Penn State you know that wasn 't devastating devastating I mean it was like uh I want to go, but I felt in my heart that I made the right decision mm-hmm. when I did um My true senior year uh I rushed for thirteen hundred yards twenty two touchdowns it was all state, but I had zero scholarship offers. I had zero scholarship offers. I had a partial scholarship offer from Edinburgh hmm. out of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And a great institution. Yeah, But I just knew it wasn't for me. And for where I wanted to go and what I wanted to accomplish, what I wanted to achieve, it wasn't uh, the next stop for me. And I could have made the easy decision to graduate from Fork Union, leave an all-boys school, and just get the hell out of there and go somewhere else and settle for that. But I just felt in my heart that there was something a little bit more out there. And I'll never forget, you know, Kevin Plank, who was the CEO of Under Armour, mm-hmm. he was at Forking at the same time. Oh, wow. And he used to call me he and say, Hey, George, where are you going next year? He's, he was going to Maryland to yeah. walk on. And I said, Man, I'm going to come back for postgraduate year. He says, What? Are you crazy? Man, get out of here. You got a parcel scholarship to go to Edinburgh. Why would you come back to this? There's no guarantee that you want to go to Ohio State, Penn State, whatever your dream is. i mean, take for what you got to get out of here. I said, no, I, I'm going to come back another year. I think I can do a little bit better. I'm going to come back a little bit fo- more focused. So um, when um, National Signing Day came around, I saw all my friends, you know, putting on the hats and going to various places. That, that that developed in me a hunger that, you know what, when I come back next year, I'm coming back a different beast. I'm coming back bigger, stronger, faster, quicker. I'm <laughs> going to be the ultimate weapon. And I'm putting everything on the line. And I did just that. So I came back from my postgraduate year. I played in six games. I rushed for over 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns. In six games, wow. and gained national attention from that point on. Um, and how Fork Union, I mean, how Ohio State came into the mix? Um, they were not on my radar, and I wasn't on theirs at all. There was uh, my platoon sergeant who was there working before a year before I was. He went to Ohio State as an athletic trainer. straight taping ankles, and. He calls me. He was checking up on me. He heard about the great year I was having at Fork Union. And, he, and at that time, Robert Smith was there, Butler Bonote. backfield is loaded. Mm-hmm. And he says to me, uh, how would you feel about coming to Ohio State? And I said, uh, that sounds interesting. I said, well, i got BYU that's interested and Louisville, um, uh, you know, Virginia. But Ohio State, I said, mm, Archie Griffin went there, yeah. Chris Carter. I'm thinking down the Buckeyes, of course. And he says, Well, let me see what I can do and get in front of the, the national recruiter, uh, Bill Conley, to see if I can get you on his radar. And I'm like, Man, listen, you, you're an athletic, you tape ankles. How are you going to get the attention of this man? He said, Just trust me. So he calls me on the payphone. He leaves me a message to call him on the payphone. And I say, Hey, Dan, what's up? He says, Well, uh, I finally got him to uh, at least look at you, send up a tape. So I prepare a tape, and at this time, you got to get off a VHS, Uh put it in the package, send it up, and it's a a week-long process. It's not like it is now with Huddle. (laughs) So he he calls me two weeks later, and he says, oh, my God, man, they love you. Send up another tape. I was like, okay, I'll send up another tape. Some another tape, pack it up, just calls me back a week later. I says, okay, what do you think? He says, man, they, are, they were just in a meeting talking about, ranting and raving about you. They want to see another tape. I said, I only have six games of material. I don't have a whole bunch of tape. So, long story short, um, Danny Osmond, um, whom I hated at, at Fork Union at the time, was the reason I went to Ohio State because he got us connected with, uh, with Bill Conley. And from Bill's perspective, it was like, how come nobody is recruiting this kid? You know, what is it? There's got to be something there that his grade something. Mm -hmm. It was just I was a diamond in the rough, so to speak. And um, they came down. They looked at my film. They made sure the dimensions were right. I was 6'3", 220 pounds. And Mm -hmm. um, they said they wanted to give me an offer. And and Coach Cooper was really honest with me. He says, listen, you know, um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to compete at running back. And we want to offer you a scholarship right here on the spot. And I said, say no more, you know. This oh, yeah. is the place for me because I just felt in my spirit that this was right. It was the right place. There were a team that was starting to come up on the rise. They were ranked in the top 25 at the time, and, and they were re- getting a lot of solid recruits. And I wanted to be a part of that, that, um, that process. It was, just, it was just perfect for me. It just felt right. Awesome. Was Herb Street the quarterback when you were there? Kirk Herb Street was our quarterback.
0: Yeah, that's yep. awesome. Yep, I remember those days, man. I'm I'm an avid, like a diehard college football fan. so yeah. I've watched hundreds and hundreds of games. Was there a game that really stands out for you that you remember so vividly that was your your moment for you mm. on the field at Ohio State? Oh, it's a couple. Um, my freshman year, me, speaking
1: of Kirk, we went up to play um, Syracuse. They we were ranked in the top five at the time in 1992. Kirk was our quarterback, and I was a goal line running specialist. And, um, uh, and that game was a night game. was a game of the week against Syracuse. We were picked. We were like maybe a thirty five point up, uh, underdog, point underdog. Something unheard of. we were supposed to get run out of the building. Well, I went on to score of three touchdowns that night. I became touchdown Eddie. Well, two weeks later, we played Illinois in a home opener, uh, in the big of the Big Ten. And back then, they were easily our second biggest rival to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, I fumbled twice in that game, um, wind up losing the game at the end, and never to see the field again for the rest of that year or my or my sophomore year. I didn't see the field again until my junior year. Wow. So it wasn't until um, my senior year, I'm having a great year, we played Illinois, and they boasted the number one defense against the run. They had two first-round picks on their, on their defense, two top five first-round picks, Kevin Hardy and Simeon Rice. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you it was a day that we were going to run the football, it was snowing sideways. Terry Glenn, our, our great receiver, was out, God bless his soul, was out with an injury. And it was going to be grown-man football inside the box. It was going to be nine on seven. We knew it. They knew it. And that's how it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where, before the game, the whole week I just felt this energy in my my and my spirit, like something great was going to happen. I didn't know what. I just couldn't. I couldn't contain. I couldn't sit in class. I was just antsy that entire week. And I just knew the challenge that was that was uh, before me because they knew I fumbled the football my freshman year. They had me in the in their, the defense was in my head and all this other stuff, and I was just in just a, a mode of just attack and 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 seek and destroy, seek mm. and destroy. So in the first quarter of that game, um, you know, I was just on such a mode of just just just, just attack this defense and, and and lay the law and impose my will and. Uh, that I just got just got lost in terms of the yards. I didn't account for anything. Mm-hmm. So after the first half, we're up, I think we were 20, seventeen three. 3 I think, um, at the time. And my offensive lineman, Jamie Sumner, says, man, did you see how many yards you have right now? I broke off a couple of big runs. I said, no, nah, what is it? It's like you have 182 yards and 11 carries. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, all right, let's Let's <laughs> let's just keep it going. So that was the moment, I think, for me when it all kind of came
0: together. Oh, wow, that is really cool. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the state of mind that you had there. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there's a variety of atmospheric things that are going on that raise the arousal level in your mind to get hyper-focused. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those, probably the one of those, why couldn't I harness that every single week? Right. Saturday and Sunday, you know, at the right. end of the day, it takes a level of impetus. It also makes something has to make you feel like you may have to be, and they've studied this up to, but no more than 20% past your best is what you can actually achieve. Mm-hmm. And that, that the one, the past against Illinois, it's a big game. Weathers against you. So, an atmosphere, like the weather, and the atmosphere—two things that can throw you into that 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 state of mind—factor mm-hmm. in your competition, two great, two phenomenal defensive players, and a great defense in Illinois, and your own personal desire to succeed, yep. and your own work ethic to be in that moment. Those—that's like a recipe for the perfect storm for for a perfect storm. Yeah, and to me, it's like it's it's unrealistic to get. Any athlete to be able to do that all the time, but it's really powerful to know when you're there, mm-hmm. so that you don't interfere with the run, right? You know, if and you ever, try to make it happen, yeah. Right. Like, so when you you've had probably many games, college, prof, high school, college, and professionally, that those kind of things came together. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you could pinpoint, maybe that led up into the week? Or during the game, or was it just something that every once in a while clicked for you in your head, and you just got locked in, and to the point where there was no way anybody was going to stop you?
1: Well, there was one thing that always stood out to me was I wasn't playing for myself. I wasn't playing to win the Heisman. I was playing for my teammates. I was playing for um for the Buckeyes. I was playing for you know the city of uh, Nashville. And that always um, drove me. And it, it, I, wouldn't tr- I wouldn't try to have a routine. I, wouldn't, I never relied or believed in um, superstition hmm. in terms of doing the same thing. I mean, that's, my superstition was not to have one, but just to respond to react and be fluid at all times, to be able to adjust in any moment. So if I'm thrown off my game, it's a part of it. It's it's, it's a part of the process of, of finding my rhythm within that distraction, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, my my thing was was visual, visual visualization mm-hmm. and being able to um, feel the plays. I would take I would get out my playbook. And I'll go through the first 15 plays. funny that we're talking about this. I just found my playbook from the Super Bowl 2000. And oh. it's going through my old office notes. And I was like, man, this is kind of cool. So I kind of went through the first 15 first 15 plays of the game. And I have notes, just little reminders of where I need to be. And it's make sure I'm getting width on this play to really sell this front side so I can get the back side tight off the A and B gap off the back side. And then I know I'm going to see the safety, show the safety. I know he doesn't like to meet up, head up. He's going to try to take me to the side. So I know I'm going to attack his left side shoulder so I can run through it. And then once I break through that, open up my stride and feel the, with the air, feel the I hear the roar of the crowd, feel the lights, feel the heat of the moment, feel the sweat dropping down all to the detail, you know, my foot placement, how my toes is attacking the ground as I'm in the open, the stiff arm that I have to give from the defender coming from inside out, you know, um, all those things I would visualize over and over again. so when I stepped on the field, I've already lived it, and I could yeah. see before it happens. And that happened um, vividly against Oakland in 1999 on a Thursday night. And – I literally everything just slowed down, and I could I could manipulate the defense with anything I wanted to do. I was going to do. Wow. Yeah.
0: And every every sport, every player who's ever had one of those moments mm-hmm. says the exact same thing. Yeah. It slowed down. You were into almost like you was you had the joystick, and you were just doing whatever, whatever you wanted. Whatever
1: you wanted to do. And it does not matter. That's you have beautiful. No. You have no shot tonight or yeah. today, whenever You <laughs> have no
0: shot. That is so cool. And you've had the opportunity to play with so many great players. And I, I, uh, there's obviously many people that I'd be interested to hear your take on, but there's two that jump out, obviously Steve McNair and Ray mm-hmm. Lewis. You know, one was your teammate, one was your arch rival. Mm-hmm. But they they both played a, an integral role in your growth, your story, what have you. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your, your brother, Steve McNair, mm-hmm. you know. When you think back to all the all the games you guys played together, uh, when I think back to those days, and this is when I moved to Nashville, what I loved about you you guys, the whole team too, obviously, but like because you guys were the two major stars, is that no matter how hurt you were, you took the field and played. Yep. No matter what the what the conditions were, you left it all on the field every single game, mm-hmm. and that's kind of Nashville—that blue-collar, hard-nosed. Yep. Uh, mindset that the city has on top of the football team when you think back to the the legend that was Steve McNair and, and the great moments that we had here with the Titans what do you remember most about Steve and your relationship on and off the field for that matter
1: oh man well I'll start with off the field um, he was Steve uh, was quiet um, unassuming a great observer hmm. he would um, dissect a, a situation, whether it was business or walking into the room, or uh understanding had you an know, understanding of who he was in the situation he was walking into, and it would never say a word. I mean he would always take the high road to say the thing. He knew, you know, what the game was in terms of that was being played, but he would he would um, do it with a deal of class, you know. Mm-hmm. He definitely would do that, and um, he was—he would give you his, his shirt off your back if you needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, he never wanted to disappoint people. Um, Steve was a, was a loving country boy who loved to loved people. He loved to be out and about. He loved to sit down, share stories. Have a few drinks, eat chicken wings at the local mm-hmm. bar and um that's that's the man that he was lovely loved his family, loved his boys, loved fishing, just loved the just the sim- the simple things in life mm-hmm. um, on the field was a warrior never um never blew his uh, his uh gasket in terms of getting out of control was always in control of his emotions, hmm. always in control of the next play, always thinking ahead. So he thought like a chess player, you know, especially when he got into his MVP years, you know, his his, his, his prime years. He was definitely in control of uh, what he wanted to do and the control and mastery of the offense. And he's, he was just um, awesome to see him develop from you know, in terms of uh, football terms from grade school football to develop to a high school quarterback to, you know, being um master Yoda
0: <laughs> so yeah, to speak. That's right.
1: As a quarterback. You know, I remember days when he um couldn't uh throw a five yard out with confidence to throwing the game winner with no time on the clock against Houston. Yeah. You know, so it was it was uh, fun to see his maturation as a quarterback and to see his confidence blossom and grow and uh, how he had to overcome a lot of stigmas of being an African-American quarterback in the NFL at the time mm-hmm. and being regarded as just a runner and dealing with injuries and not wanting to play football anymore, only to to come back and to achieve and accomplish the things that he accomplished was, was truly
0: remarkable. Yeah, no question yeah. about it. I kind of would imagine uh, not being a football player but been in situations where other great people are around you. When you see somebody, when he had a bruised sternum and a mm-hmm. severely injured shoulder, yep. And you had turf toe out the wazoo mm-hmm. all the time
1: mm-hmm. for that.
0: Like, especially the one, I guess it was the year we went to the Super Bowl.
1: The, what, the year after the 2000, year after, yeah.
0: yeah it's like you gotta feel like if you're a teammate that if these guys are going out. And if you, obviously, I'm sure you, you and Steve weren't the only ones that were playing banged up. Mm-hmm. But that mindset of, like, no matter how bad I'm hurting, there's a difference between hurting and being injured. Yeah. If I'm hurt, that's, I, part I, of that's it. not that's, that's part of it. And we're going out and taking that field. Yeah. And nobody, we're going to play like you. Well, I felt like at 50%, I was
1: still better than 100% of the guys out there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that was just my mentality. Man. Maybe <laughs> right. I wasn't.
1: And I, I've come close to, you know, missing a few games. Maybe I should have taken off uh, a few times, but. You know, you have a finite window to yeah. accomplish something in the league. And and you'll find in this in, uh, in this business, it's very much a business. But you have to separate the business and um, the love of the game. Yeah. You know, and the love of the game says, hey, you know what? I have an opportunity of X amount of years to accomplish great things. I want to win five or six championships. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to win rushing titles. And I can't do that by sitting on the bench. hmm Especially if I can, if I can walk, if I can run, if I can cut, if I can try to t- tweak my game a little bit, I'm gonna do just that. Because you you never know, yeah. you know. I mean, you think, oh well, I could take it for granted, I'll be back next year. Nah, that that that's when your window closes. Mm-hmm. So you have to take advantage of the opportunity while you have it, and you, the opportunity to get it done.
0: Yeah, no question. Ray Lewis, no, I, I tell you, I mm-hmm. didn't. Obviously, he was a Ravens, so I hated the Ravens. I well, do too. I yeah, still do. <laughs> but but I, it's interesting because I never would have thought that you guys would even have like a relationship that would be mm-hmm. as close as it is. But he strikes me as a very powerful and enduring guy that you, once you got to know, would be somebody that you'd be intriguing to be around. Yeah. And he has a a very unique way of leadership. He has a Reggie White pastoral way mm. of guiding and, and getting a group of guys together. When, and when you think of Ray Lewis and what he did, whether it was on the field or off the field, what has Ray brought to your, to your life?
1: Oh, wow. Well, Ray and I go back to 96 uh, before we came into the league. And um, that's our friendship has always started there. And it led from a friendship to definitely a rivalry. Um, so I understood who he was as a, as a man. He understood who I was as a man. You know, we shared um, a lot of our dreams and desires early in our career together. When they were the Ravens, we were the Tennessee Oilers. And, you know, we both went to our first Pro Bowls together. We hung out with each other. You know, I remember going to do a card signing. I said, come roll with me, man. So after I did my signing, we'd go to the bar and get some Mai Tais and talk and, and chase women. You know, yeah, that's that's sure. what we were doing. Um, but when it came down between the white lines, um, it was business. You know, it was no handshakes. It was no no friendship. It was no smiling. You know, um, I me- I remember I went to go try to see him before a game. He didn't want to talk. I said, "Oh, that's the tone. Okay, that's how that's how we're going to do it." <laughs> so it it, it always it was always that mutual respect there, and you know, when every time I played Ray, it was a different type of game it wasn't a game it was warfare mm-hmm. that was the nature of it and if you lost your life or your career ended that day then so be it hmm. you know it was no it was no friendships i mean the the baltimore ravens of 2000 arguably in my opinion is one of the top defenses ever to to uh be to play in the nfl and i put that up against the 85 uh, bears 85 bears the 86 uh giants the '92 uh, Eagles, uh, yeah. Philadelphia Eagles, and those boys were nasty, <laughs> and they played with with bad intentions. Oh, you yeah. know, I grew up in the air, in the area, so I, I know yeah. how. They, and that's how the Ravens played. It was it was nothing trickery, no trickery to it. It was four three front, cover two, occasional cover three. Beat it, yeah. You know, I dare you. I dare you to beat it. Wow. You, know, you had and every guy on that defense was hitting you with bad intentions, hmm. so. Um, not only did Ray galvanize and inspire his teammates, he inspired an entire city. I mean, he, the Baltimore was defined by Ray Lewis. Mm-hmm. And that was because of his spirit, it was because of the things he's gone through in his life. Um, you looked at a man, you know, prior to that year, his career was in jeopardy. Yeah. He may not have played another down of football. That's right. But to come back from that is one thing. But to win a Super Bowl and to, be, and to win over people and to change the, the rhetoric, rhetoric around his name was completely different, yeah. completely rebranded himself. So, you know, it lets me know that if your mind is, is truly focused on a goal and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there, you can get it done. Yeah. Because what makes Ray so powerful is not necessarily his athletic prowess or his abilities, or even his heart, it's, it's his intellect. Hmm. It's in between the temples, and yeah. and that's tied to his spirit. He operates out of a warrior spirit. Interesting. And in order to defeat that, you've got to go there yourself. Because if you're not spiritually strong, and he sees that, he'll take your heart, and he'll have you for the rest of the game. Mm. Interesting. And nobody wants to see that. Yeah. So you've got to be, you have have to be spiritually Fit when you go up against that because it's going to take you to beat the spirit in order to get the victory.
0: Interesting. One of the I've spent a lot of time studying uh, flow F- state, flow genome project across the the globe with a guy named Stephen Kotler and Jamie Weil and a handful of other guys, and they talk about the the challenges and the difficulties of when you can no longer be in the arena and mm-hmm. how hard that is for a boxer, a football player, a basketball player. Like a rock star, a music, an actor, actress. When you've lived this life, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Mm-hmm. How hard is that?
1: It's very difficult to go from um, raising, developing, uh, building this person. That's an athlete. To now you can't do that anymore. It's it's you're putting to rest uh literally a part of you. Yeah. You know, it's that's never going to um exist anymore. And that's a difficult thing. It's grieving, it's mm-hmm. a grieving period. And it's it's a process that I had to go through because there's no really no easy way to leave the game. Yeah you can have the press conference, you can get your jersey retired, you can get all those things. Um, but it uh it's difficult to um to really process it mentally like man, I can't wake up and go to the grind anymore. You know, for me, it was the process. It wasn't the destination. It wasn't even the locker room stuff so much. Mm-hmm. But it was the process. Of preparing for an NFL season or a season in general, it was the sprints, it was the you know, running up the mountains and in, and in, in, um, in San Francisco, and then running the 800s and the 400s and the 200s, and feeling my endurance getting stronger, seeing the physical change, getting mentally prepared, digging deeper, you know, seeing the success, uh, those small victories that you have physically, like ah. I couldn't make this cut, you know, three weeks ago, but now I feel like that burst is there and I'm able to set it up just the way I want it. It's the nuances, the details um, of the game that that really, that I enjoy developing and cultivating. Mm -hmm. So once that process was gone, it's like, well, damn, who am I? First of all, you know, I'm really not a football player. I'm more than that. So what is next? What's the next arena? Mm -hmm. But I found that, and and continuing to wake up every day, and to have the courage to step out there in faith, is that you create your own arena, yeah. And that football and sports in general opens up different doorways and it gives you a new set of building blocks to build a new platform that's unique from de- from anybody else. <laughs>
0: Interesting. Yeah. What what happens when you're in that that great moment? You got seventy thousand people screaming for you or against you, with a a group of guys all with the same mm-hmm. cause, and you're in that place. Your brain produces six different chemicals that create that state, mm-hmm. that flow state, where everything's easy and slow. Okay, everybody has that, but also everybody favors one of them that we could we don't we wouldn't call it addicted to it, but it is similar to addiction. And those six chemicals are manufactured by humans and sold on the street as illegal drugs. Mm. Okay. The difference is is that when you're in a flow state, all six of those come together and create this awesome level of super slowed down performance yep. that's Uber clear. That's because all six of the chemicals are released into your brain simultaneously. Mm. But almost always, one of those chemicals becomes something you would get addicted to. And it's when you step out of the game, one of those things, yep, will become the vice because you're trying to cling to that feeling mm-hmm. that'll bring you down. And to me, I, I've always been like I, I study like Tiger Woods. Greg Norman uh, of those people when they when it looked like they were done tiger certainly looked like it was over yeah tiger struggled with many with, with certainly things opiates and uh the things that were trying to soothe his heart so to speak yeah and greg norman not that much different when you felt like it was it was over what what was do you think that you missed the most
1: guess it was conquering Imposing yeah. my will. <laughs> you know, there was nothing that I could impose my will upon or to conquer. Um, it was the sense of gratification when I scored a touchdown or we won a game or we went to the playoffs or we played in the Super Bowl. Um, that was the number one thing that, that I missed the most was, again, the grind of that. Um, you know, you mentioned Tiger. You know, I can't wait to get his book, by the way.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: That he's writing himself. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be it's the number one seller already. When it came out of his mouth, it's <laughs> <that's> number one. <laughs> that's
0: exactly right.
1: So I'm gonna be the first one to get it. But um at the athletics is, is just it's so it's so unique, especially as you go up the ladder, it becomes more refined. Yeah you know, where everything matters from your foot placement to what you're thinking moment to moment, how you handle getting hit in the mouth and how you respond to that, Mm -hmm. how you handle three touchdowns one week and then three fumbles the following week, the ebbs and flows of that. And understanding that, you know, being scared and being, you know, uh, nervous going into games that that's okay, you know how do you channel that channel that energy? the energy is there, so how do you choose to channel that energy? yeah and when you unravel it and you unpackage that fear, you know what's really there? you know, and Kobe said it best in the podcast I heard him say it was really profound. He says, when you unpackage it, it's just your imagination running wild, so fear is you know is nothing more than an illusion, yeah, you know fear is like.
0: Face everything and respond, you know, false emotion appearing real. Yeah, exactly. No doubt. It's so cool. Like Kobe, I was reading this book um, called Relentless Mm -hmm. and it's about his trainer, Tim Grover. And he said that, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. He said that the difference between Kobe and Michael Jordan and LeBron is that Kobe and MJ are cleaners. LeBron is a closer, and the difference is that a closer, when everything's just right, he can dominate and take over, but when things aren't going just right, it appears as if they disappear, and they start wanting to pass the ball, or they're okay with becoming a decoy, maybe in in football Mm -hmm. terms, but in basketball, LeBron would all of a sudden, if he started off slow, all of a sudden he'd turn into like Magic Johnson and only try to pass he wouldn't no longer would would shoot and he has had off games not many but he has had off games in big events mj and kobe never did and and like they had the idea of hop on my back and we're going follow Mm -hmm. me and lebron's like come everybody gather around we're gonna do this together and i'm gonna bring out the best in you and the best in you and michael was never and kobe were never like that give me the damn ball Mm -hmm. and get open because if I if they cover me, I'm gonna hit you. LeBron's like, "Hey man, get 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 go over here, go over here. I'm gonna get." Do you fe- manipulates it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and like, cause I almost feel like Michael and Kobe were like snipers, yeah. and and LeBron was a was a Navy Seal. But and, and there's nothing it, wrong with right. either one. That's right. Let's
1: just be perfectly clear. Now we're just you we're know, just picking hairs and, yeah. and really talking about the differences. But I think you're spot on. Um LeBron um is a phenomenal athlete. I don't think we've ever seen an athlete of his of his type, of his caliber play at the level that he's played at, and he's been extremely dominant. But Kobe Mike's a different story. Yeah. Kobe was the ultimate assassin. I mean just the ultimate assassin where he's looking to take your head off. Yeah and he doesn't care if he misses a shot. He I mean the man the man is so confident in his abilities and being in the moment he relishes in that. He lives for that. He's like, "Okay, 6 seconds on the clock. Give me the ball. Clear everything out. It's on me." You know, I don't care what people may think. Whereas like you said, LeBron will fade to the back and wants to distribute and get other people involved, which is great team ball. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you're the guy. You take it, want to lose. You know your legacy will be defined either way. That's right. And you can't hide behind the numbers. You got to hide. You, you only only the clips are going to show you really stepping up and taking a shot, or um, wanting winning the ball in your hands when it really counts the most. So I think I think you know that's the difference. And I think more so MJ than than Kobe because. Kobe studied Michael to Yeah, I mean, he studied him down to the damn socks that he wore, the, the style, the way yep. he walks, talks. And that's a great person to emulate if you're going to do anything. <laughs> and he's the closest, in my opinion, to be like Mike in terms of that, mm-hmm. in terms of tenacity, attention to detail, um, certain leadership styles. Yeah. I mean, not everybody, you know, you can't always be a dictator you know i think you show a level of appreciation to guys that's how you get the best out of them in my opinion but um but in terms of killer instinct kobe all day without 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 a doubt
0: hmm. when you when you think back to the, the the running backs that you admired when you were growing up mm-hmm. and even probably even while you were still playing who were the the handful of guys that were like your you who you paid attention to oh wow um
1: when I grew up, Walter Payton, mm. Walter was the, the the that guy that would inflict pain on you. Um, I studied a, a lot of the old timers: Hugh McElhinney, the oh. Galloping Ghost. Yeah, you know his ability to cut on the drop of a dime, uh, to make guys miss in the open field. Um, Gale Sayers was another one. I used to love, love watching him run. Just his his ability to make people miss. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was known for you give 18 inches of daylight. That's all he needs, mm-hmm. and he's gone. Of course, Barry Sanders, the great magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, but for me, it was Jim Brown. Yeah. You know, my my father loved Jim Brown. My grandfather loved Jim Brown. So as a result, I love Jim Brown. And uh, Earl Campbell. Yeah, guys that don't because running backs are are unique in the fact that. They have to run from a spirit. At some point in the game, you have to impose your will. Mm-hmm. You have to run from within. Yeah. It's instinctual. You can't think about it. You can't say, hey, I'm going to plant my right foot here, and I'm going to stiff arm a guy. Mm-hmm. You know, It has to be in you to punish somebody. You have to deliver the blow before you be, you're being hit. You're actually a defensive player with the ball in your hand. Wow, and man. you have to approach it like, okay, I see this linebacker. I can score in the first quarter but to set up my run for the fourth quarter when it counts I'm going to let him know how hard this feels how this hit feels he's going to know that this is going to be like this for the next 60 minutes plus are you man enough to deal with that consistently hmm. for four quarters and guess what my conditioning is so good that I'm, I get better as I go mm-hmm. so understand that as we go I get stronger
0: he mm-hmm. yeah. does. <laughs> you know, so that's that's that's,
1: that's 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 the one thing I wanted guys to know. It yeah. wasn't about scoring early in the game. It's about setting it up in the fourth quarter to suck the life out of you, Interesting. and to hear the the grunts and when I hit you is, uh, and and you're breathing, your hands are on your hips, and you're tapping out. You don't want you don't want to see it anymore. Yeah. You know that that's that's where you
0: impose your will. Interesting. Look what I remember. Man, it may have been in the late 90s or early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me about who you reminded me of, and I said you always reminded me of a blend of Eric Dickerson and Earl Campbell mm. because you ran upright similarly, not as upright as Eric Dickerson. Mm-hmm. You had the similar moves as Eric Dickerson, but you hit like Earl Campbell.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I tried to have a blend. Yeah, and I could also um, yeah. see Jim
0: Brown and Walter Payton. I didn't, yeah. I didn't give that much thought, but when I, I just remember being asked that question. As we were sitting here talking about it, I remember being was like going, you know, he, he, he's the size and look of Eric Dickerson, but when he lowers his shoulders, it looks like Earl Campbell. Hey, but you know what?
1: But in all, all five guys you mentioned, they all have something in common. They all ran with that with relentless spirit. Yeah. You know, Eric Dickerson, you look at some of his runs, he put his head down and ran over you, ran through you, and he had world-class speed, Four three, No one was catching him. Earl Campbell, same thing. I mean, Jim Brown, same thing. Walter Payton, I mean, he was the epitome of what a great running back is is like. Yeah. Heart,
0: speed, tenacity, balance. He was He was just different. He yeah. was just different. No doubt. Well, when football ended and there was uh, that time passed between football and acting. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about, because many people were kind of shocked mm-hmm. that you, you took the acting route, but you killed it. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about, like, where that love came from and how it how that became, like, a second chapter of success for you and it really probably is maybe an impetus to thrust you into the place you are today. Well, it was. Um, it continues to do that. And in a nutshell, it's taking a
1: lot of that displaced energy that was left with football um, and using that as a way of... Um, it was not it's not therapy but it was therapeutic yeah it's uh cathartic and and really just to tell stories it's a form of of storytelling yeah period yeah uh and i've done various roles from shakespeare to straight plays to even the musical with chicago and it's the ability to tell your story truthfully and honestly and i've been able to uh truly redefine myself as a person because of that process and to use a lot of that that stuff that I no longer need um, to tell a story in an honest way mm-hmm. it's tools that I use now yeah. and it's healthy in a healthy way yeah. so in essence that's how I got into theater it wasn't about hey let me be a movie star and 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 try to um we capture those days of where people notice me now as a, as a movie star, I mean that'll be great to win an Oscar, but you know that's not necessarily the goal. It, the goal is to is to is something I love to do is to perform. It, it brings the the same um, level of focus and the same grind that mm-hmm. I did as a football player to the craft of acting, to get on script, to go into blocking to share the stage with another actor and, and develop that trust, that chemistry like Steve and I had. Mm-hmm. So it's a different stage, pun intended, sure. uh-huh. <laughs> uh, a different field, uh, so to speak. But the same principles apply to that. And I continue to do that for as long as I continue to work on the art of, of acting. So um, it was that uh, blended with the idea of, of being an entrepreneur as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in in the business, in business period, you've got to understand the principles of business. You know, entertainment business, uh, sports business, you know, school is a business. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand the the principles of business, then you're always going to be a pawn. And you don't know your true value. You don't know what you can truly be. <laughs> so uh, once I got out of football, it was like, well, what do I want to do? Yes, my career is over. I'm sad, but I'm also excited about what I can become. And it wasn't just about having another job or getting a, being a, an investment advisor or a speaker or a commentator. It's more broad because, again, the game has opened up so many avenues for me that I can say, hey, I can do entertainment, I can do education, I can do entrepreneurship, I can do things passively, and I can be in control of my own entity. What's what's that look like? And what is my passion within being an entrepreneur? It's helping others. How am I helping others? Oh, through wealth management. It's through discipleship. It's through leadership. I can bring all those principles and helping them with 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 their plans or young athletes. And as a storyteller, it's developing stories. Yeah. It's developing stories that relates to athletes and to money problems and to all the issues that I've gone through, sharing stories in that regard. Mm-hmm. And through education, well, what are the principles that help you, that, that can continue to um, develop that through financial literacy, through case studies, through all of that stuff? So it's a, it's. it's built into three different categories but their synergies are so closely connected
0: that's awesome yeah obviously uh, when you sit here and you think about all the things that you've accomplished it doesn't look like there were any dark days it just looks like Mm. it was one seamless beautiful (laughs) trip to the top (laughs) man but we we all we all know that that's not the truth but it's I think it's more powerful to hear it from somebody who's Mm. who's achieved the level of success that you've had that not everything's been perfect no when you think about a maybe either the lowest point that you can recall or a very low point that you pulled something out of you that you didn't know you had perseverance wise or grit wise that really helped <laughs> took from the, hit the bottom and went back up what were some of the principles of the perseverance and where did you where do you where did you pull it from, and how can you help somebody out there listening go through a dark? Well, moment?
1: for me, um, it's not it's not simple to go through it. Um, it's it's very simple for me to say is prayer. Plain and simple, you can read a lot of health books, self help books. You can hit, listen to a lot of different podcasts. You can get a lot of different help. But the number one thing for me is my is my faith in God. Um, through it all. Um, I've always relied on God guiding me to his will and allowing me just to be the vessel Mm -hmm. because just my my will and my uh, physical ability can get me to a lot of places. I can accomplish a lot of great things. But when I allow the spirit to guide me in combination with that, the three, the body, mind and spirit when they're in unison and the spirit is guiding me, my life is more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So when I reach the pinnacle of my own power, it's not gonna be as fulfilling. Yeah. It's not, man, this is not what I thought it was cracked up to be. I yeah. mean, I won a Super Bowl, I won a Heisman, but this is it. But if I had the spirits guiding me, if I don't win it, hey, I'm still fulfilled. Yeah. I'm still a father, I'm still a husband. I'm still uh, sharing the gospel. I'm still able to live by the, the, the eat, feel, feel the fruit of the spirit in that way. Uh, when success or failure comes, I'm I'm still rock solid in who I am, yeah. and I'm able to, to extract out the blessings in that. So you know, again, there have been a lot of gray days. When it feels like an iron-clad lid's on top of that day, and mm-hmm. it's cold, it's bitter, and it's rough, and. Um, I just rely on, on my scriptures. I rely on the Spirit. I always say I just surrender all. And surprisingly enough, you know, the joy that's generated from within, I begin to see from a completely different perspective. And I'm pulled out of that mindset and I'm able to see the the path I need to go on. I'm able to see the answers. Mm-hmm. I'm able to hear what someone is saying. Like, okay, oh, this the this is going to solve my situation um, and here's the solution to it so that's that's what I, what I rely on yeah that's that's
0: beautiful uh because there's so many people out there that are vacant in the spirit department mm-hmm. whether it's because they have never been exposed to it, which is possible afraid of what they can't prove or validate always looking for always looking for proof in the uh and I need proof that that Jesus lived. I need proof that God's there. Mm-hmm. Always looking for proof instead of having the faith. Yeah. Is um there's that 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 dance that so many people go through. But and I, and still, I've questioned it yeah. from time to time. I've questioned, well, did God
1: really live? And you know, I, I grew up a Catholic. I grew up, I went to um, a Baptist based, Christian based um uh academy, I was going to FCA, I, I continued to go to church. Mm-hmm. And you do question it. But when you look back at it, when I look back at my own life, I'm like, man, I went from the football field to a Broadway stage singing. So was it really me? I mean, I, yeah, I showed up, but there were some things revealed to me that didn't belong to me that I had to discover. Mm-hmm. And The only way I could reach that point, I had to rely on God.
0: Uh-huh. You see awesome. what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And when dark days come, and they will, and they will, It's guaranteed. How are you going to get through it? And I've seen a lot of guys that were vacant spiritually, you know, fall by the wayside, mm-hmm. and whether they succumb to to substances or um, taking their own lives, it happens. I mean, we talk about CTE and football as an example as mm-hmm. being dangerous and so forth and hits and all of that, but there's nothing more dangerous than a lost soul,
0: Ooh, wow, or, that's
1: beautiful or, or right even someone that that's hurting spiritually a crushed spirit man it goes into the bones bro yeah that's right you know what i'm saying oh, yeah. so and that's and if you don't believe it give it a try you know every morning i wake up i read the book of proverbs and one book one chapter excuse me out of the uh, out of the book of proverbs and to me that's where success lies yeah you know asking for wisdom you're able to get discernment to learn you know the right path and the wrong path And you're able to operate out of an excellent spirit Mm -hmm. and a discerning spirit. And you're able to see, you know, differently. You're moving differently. You're talking differently. You're walking differently. You're expecting differently. Even though you're not where you want to be right now, physically, people, in terms of having uh, awards, you still operate that same way. Mm -hmm. You still talk the same way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a matter of, getting the, to the destination or getting the goal is a matter of the process and the thought process that goes behind that yeah. and the steps that it takes to get there.
0: Interesting. Well, we've had, we've spent a lot of time understanding how you might have your batteries drained from mm-hmm. all the, the things that you've done to achieve great things. And when we start talking about the things that fill your cup up, got you recharged your batteries, mm-hmm. historically speaking, there are they're things that large amounts of people gather around to do together, like-mindedness and those are usually sporting events, concerts, music, mm-hmm. and family gatherings and get-togethers. So when we think about music, mm. what's your favorite music? Who's your favorite artist?
1: Oh, wow. Well, uh, Virg, I one of the things I love to do when I go home, um, just to unwind, I have uh, two turntables, and I have uh, my Serato um, equipment, and I play music all night, I DJ. I love that. So I'll I'll do 80s, I'll do uh, pop for top 40, but I love 90s hip-hop. I'm a huge fan of 90s hip-hop. Who's your fave? Well, of course, you know, Jay-Z is always the top of the list. But Digging diggin in the Crates, uh, I love Backpack Rap. That was uh, Black Moon, um, like Smith & Wesson, uh, Nas... Uh, most deaf, yeah. uh, outcast, Scarface. Um, I just, I just love the feeling that it gave me because music gives you the hope yeah. of something. You yeah. know, I was sharing this with somebody today that music, one song that you listen to, can just just take you, and just keeps fuel, and keeps you, gives you hope. You know, one song for me was Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to that over and over again for about every day for six months. And um, I still go back to it time and time again. So music for me is a great release, but also a great reminder. And it's it's a thread of hope that, hey, you know what, just one more day. You know, you, yep. can, you can see it through. And uh, we can always go back to a song that helps you get through something yeah. or defines a, a great
0: moment in time in your life. Interesting. It's like Jay Z. Jay Z's never resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I've listened to a lot of his stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't hit me like Snoop Dogg uh-huh. a- and Dre, Tupac, Biggie, uh, Eminem, Nas. Th- those guys to me, like cause somebody asked me, you know, they, who's your Mount Rushmore of rap, mm. and I'm like, well, that's tough because I'm trying to think historically or in my own heart. Historically, I don't know how you don't have N.W.A. itself yes. as one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then there's so many groundbreakers mm-hmm. before, you know, basically Run-D.M.C. stepped into yeah. that, that. with Run-D.M.C. Run-D.M.C., one, one LL Cool J., it, et cetera. But I'm like, the Rushmore is, it, to me, is Eminem. Yeah, Eminem's beast. Dre. Mm-hmm. Tupac. Mm-hmm and Biggie Smalls. Okay. I mean, and, and that's fair. Yeah. But you wh- know, who would you put on that? Who would you put on the face of Mount Rushmore of rap?
1: Whew. Mount Rushmore of rap? Hip-hop um, and rap. Ah, man, I would have to say definitely Jay-Z uh, because his catalog is ridiculous. Yeah, that's true. And you listen, if you listen to, to his lyrics, especially now, you know, like 444 is a, is a, is a classic album. And he's a lyricist. Mm-hmm. I listen to the poetry, the double entendres. Sometimes the triple entendres is like, oh my God, this yep. dude is brilliant beyond light years beyond himself. And and the reason why he's sustainable because he speaks to the spirit. Yeah. So Jay Z, um <sighs> I would have to say uh, for me personally mm-hmm. i would see i would say black thought from the roots because black thought is is he's in the moment he can come into this room right now and talk about the amount of trophies you have, talk about Innsworth as a whole, talk about the dog that's on my lap, talk about the shoes, the Vans that I'm wearing, the Smoothie King that you just had, and the probiotics that's on your desk, and <laughs> the golf, I mean, just all in all in rhythm now. Yeah. I mean, just right now. So as a lyricist, talent-wise, I have to go with Black Thought, uh, Biggie Smalls, and um, I'll have to go with... Uh, who else? I'm trying to think... Uh, to go with Eminem. Eminem. I mean, because uh, Eminem's the same way. I mean, he not only is, is he commercially successful, but again, he can... The essence of hip-hop is when you're gathered in a cypher and they throw you in there and you can go toe-to-toe with anybody and blow for blow. It's it's that's That, to me, is talent. Yeah, that is talent. Yeah. What's the best concert you've ever been to? You know what? That's funny. Um, I would have to say it was recently um it was uh Travis Scott Astro World
0: and these kids love I love Travis As- Scott. I love I love Travis Scott <laughs> Astro
1: World so to me is a classic album wow oh my god when i first heard it i was like this is something soulful about this but he's just his energy when he hits the stage oh man it it, it, a spec- it is spectacular to see it and I
0: took my sons to see it. You know, uh, <laughs> I was like, you called yeah, me this is Travis Scott. I you love it. <laughs> but it's so funny. Like, every once in a while, we have practice in here on a rainy day, mm-hmm. and I'll let them just, like, what do you want uniformly, all mm-hmm. 14 of them? Well, 13 of them, because one of them is like this bizarre weird weirdness of, he wants to listen to the Grateful Dead or the Beatles. I've never. <laughs> it's so strange. He's 15 years old and he's so into the Beatles and the Dead. But across the board, all of them, Travis Scott. The first thing that's out of their mouth. That Travis
1: Scott. When I work out, Travis Scott that it's is so, low, shuffle and let it go, man. You don't, cool. have to, you don't have to skip through one song. Yeah. And that's it's a rarity nowadays yeah. because now you have a bunch of singles and um, you know you got um, uh, what I call it ringtone rap. You know where it's, it's not. The quality from top to bottom, the thoughtfulness mm-hmm. uh, from song to song, just isn't there. So that's why I find myself but Meek Mill to me, mm-hmm. I love. Dude, that guy's good. I love now Meek, I mean, he's from Philly. I'm from Philly, guy, but Meek Mill, uh, man, the stuff that he's that he's talking about is so relevant, and the, he's a great storyteller because when i know growing up in Philadelphia, and when he when he raps, I can. I can I can feel the heat of the city and I and I know parts of the city like the I can smell the cheesesteaks on South Street mm-hmm. and you know just the vibe of the summer just being out in the in Fairmount Park and just the the energy I mean he just the way he describes you I can I can see all that I can you know, smell the urine reeking out of the <laughs> out of the subway. You know, it's that's just right. he just he just does an exceptional job of painting those pictures through his songs, and uh, I so appreciate that. And the, and how he how is married with the right beats,
0: it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. he is very good. Mm-hmm. I forgot about him. Yeah, I, man, right? it's so, so, <laughs> There's so much talent out there. Uh huh. And it, the thing about music that's different than about sport is, in, you know. Snoop Dogg's been on the top of oh, on the top of the game since yeah. like ninety two ish. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah, that's 92. that's twenty five years. Yeah, of being on like. He can fill up an arena, and hadn't put out anything new in a year. Just like
1: anything, and he's reinvented himself multiple times. Multiple times. I mean, from actor to host now, and uh, entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about the different platforms that we have. I mean, who's to say that? Yeah, you go from being a football player to being in, in the booth, talking football, or uh, being a commentator. I mean, that's that's a natural step, but. For me,
0: that just wasn't my long-term path. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. When you think about your outside, obviously probably the Super Bowl has to be the greatest event that you've no. been in. But as a spectator, what was the coolest game event that you went to go see? Hmm.
1: Oh, wow. The, as a spectator, I would have to say, uh, what year was that? The year Rory McElroy was at the Masters and he was leading the entire week. 2011. He, 2011, he found himself between two houses <laughs> where 10. the cameras couldn't even go yeah. up in there. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the Masters, uh, and I wasn't really into golf like I am now. Yeah. But to uh, have the opportunity to walk on those sacred grounds and to really take in the beauty, drink in the sunshine. It was a beautiful weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, To see the flowers in full bloom. Uh, I think, is it uh, 16? Oh, yeah, 16. Is 16, 16, Amen's Corner? No,
0: 16 is, I mean, Amen Corner is 11, 12, 13. Corner. Yeah, 11, 11, 12, 13. 11, 12, 13. He made a mess of 11, 12, and 13. Yeah,
1: but that... Was phenomenal. Yeah. When I saw uh, Bubba Watson hit a draw, I mean, like, I forgot what hole it was, but he was way back there, and he hit a draw and placed it, like, 25 yards out. And I said, oh, my God, that's talent. Yeah. How did he do that? You know, that was just amazing to me. So, I say, outside of football, basketball, um, that was a great thing to see the second one is michael, jo- michael jordan's uh last game um uh, in an um all-star game and uh was it DC i think yeah when he played for washington he played for washington yeah that was the last one that yeah.
0: was that was pretty awesome to see yeah i bet talk to us about the super bowl what was that i mean that's the the epic level of build up for a football player to have been there, and obviously we, we didn't win, huh? We as if I played in it, but I, I felt like I was That's there. Right. Yeah, but at the weak. end of the day, one yard short essentially. But you had, what's it like taking the field before the game with that kind of energy and all the buildup for your life? It's a lifetime goal.
1: Yeah. What was that like? Well, the beginning of the, before the game was great, you know, warm-ups. You know, just to go out and feel the energy of the crowd, the anticipation, just the magnitude of the game. Um, was it felt like home for me? <laughs> I was like, this is where I belong. I said, man, this isn't. This is intoxicating. I can play. I want to get here every single year from this point on. I, I've got to see this, to see the fl- all the flashlights snap at kickoff. You know, having your name announced. Um, to see the the Roman numerals painted on the field. Knowing that this is the last one, the only game is not Game sevens. There's no Game Sevens. There's no. There's no second chances. There's no. Hey, we'll get them tomorrow night. There's none of that. It's one, one shot, one shot only. And the amount of pressure on um, that game is tremendous. So uh, it's it felt incredible, but it can be a distraction because you have a lot of celebrities walking around you 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 you're getting asked to do different things it's taking a lot longer to get on the field and to play the game so it's in essence like it's a game but really it's just a platform for commercials to be sold and corporate event and it's it's disjointed so you can't get wrapped up into the flow you get taken out of the flow real quickly yeah you're down 16 nothing it's like man we didn't even play the game yet like what we we're, no, we're no, no type of rhythm, so it's not usually to the second half when all the commercials are out of the way that you really play the game, mm-hmm. and hopefully you're still in it by yeah. the time <laughs> that you <laughs> can have a chance to
0: win it. But that's that's how how it goes for for me. How it went for me. Oh, that's that's amazing because I have had fortune here. So so Kerry Collins and Neil O'Donnell have mm-hmm. done one, and they oh, both yeah. talked about like so they both said different things that they loved about it, and. But it was interesting to listen. Like Neil O'Donnell was just loved the, the preparation. Mm-hmm. Like he loved the fact that it was two weeks, in between. Yeah, because he had a because they he had a lot of family that wanted to come watch the game. So like that, the week before you're getting tickets and what have you, and a lot of the stress that goes into that week, and then it's the second week's the the business side of it. He loved the – He was a film guy. He loved the fi- like studying yep. film, and Kerry Collins was also. It, very interesting he just like his it was his lifelong dream and he stood there and just had like a, a moment to himself when the, getting right right before the national anthem and just like how much like he was grateful for all the things that yep. he'd been through to be where he was and that moment was really that was also pretty cool i can't imagine like that's like to me i i've coached brant snedeker at the masters mm. and i've been at u.s opens and women's u.s opens and so i but only as the coach, not as the player. So I can't, I can tell you what it's like to be a 28 year old guy out there helping a 24 year old guy win a Masters, <laughs> although he didn't win, you know. But to be out there was that was a humbling experience I to be bet. standing on the range with Tiger and Ernie Ells and Mickelson and V J and, and slapped right in between all four of those guys is uh, Brent Snedeker, and me being in the middle of that was like, wow, this is i'm here
1: what was that like i mean did you see tiger on the ring i, I can only imagine what it was like this had to be surreal moment right it's to see all these like
0: it's like the heaven
1: of golfers yeah. like
0: sitting right there in front of you so it was pretty cool so if if you've ever watched faraday on the golf channel faraday did an interview with darren clark on a day that i was standing right there and i remember him commenting so it was kind of a rainy day. Not many, not, wasn't much play going on, and Tiger hit balls for like three and a half hours, and he literally doesn't hit the golf ball. He hits the ball differently. He really, you all you hear is the click of impact. It doesn't. He's not a big divot taker, so he literally was what they call a stripe show. He just was every shot whatever you wanted to see three yard draw high seven yard fade low he he, he was just on fire and darren clark went over to his divots he'd been hitting there for three and a half hours and he literally only took about a 12 by 8 rectangle and he didn't take any dirt he just pressed the grass into the dirt so it was like all it was like like grass squeezed and pressed down into the dirt and he just was so baffled by it he actually even talked about it on faraday but i just remember hearing like all you heard was you didn't hear like, Phew, like the divot flying. All you heard was just him picking it right off the turf, and it was like uh, a maestro. Hi. Like you could see it in his hands. And he talks about it now. Yeah. Like he feels everything in his hands.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And he's just like, "What do you want to see?" I mean, it was she was showing off. Yeah. On a Tuesday, high, you know, low, and it just hitting it so hard wow. off. And I was like, I am in the presence of greatness. Wow. It was a showstopper. I mean, he wasn't working with Butch Harmon anymore, but he was hanging around all the Butch Harmon's guys. So Darren Clark was there and Adam Scott was there and Ernie Els was there and Mickelson's there. And it was just crazy. That is amazing. I mean, I mean, Tiger was, Tiger was the first person to come out with all the technology and all the high end video that was available to coaches to be the best at everything. Hmm. So I studied him so intently. He changed my, I wake up every day and I think David led better for creating the golf teacher job and tiger woods for elevating the profession yeah. to a level that I could make a living doing what I do and do so in a very nice way.
1: Right, 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 right.
0: Tiger did things that nobody's ever done before. And like, this is like humbling, man. Think about this. There's two stats that, Totally blew my mind. Three different times, Tiger Woods was number one in every statistical category except bunker saves. Like getting up and down wow. from the bunkers. No, this is even funnier. The, the year in which he was like 73rd in bunker saves, he only hit 43 bunker shots that year. What? He never hit it in the bunker, so it didn't make a difference.
1: Oh, my God. He
0: was better. He was the best driver of the golf ball, the best iron player, greatest up and down. Greatest putter, greatest mind, greatest strategist. He was the best at everything. It was unbelievable. Then this stat totally freaked me out two separate times. Tiger's up-and-down percentage was greater than the second player on the tour's up-and-down percentage by more so than the worst player on the tour was compared to number two. Think about that. That's a level of stupid good. That is so frightening. He was so much better than the second best player that it was more so than the worst Worst player player. on tour compared to number two. That is unbelievable. That's unreal. So I tell people all the time, I know that Babe Ruth was amazing, and I'm absolutely positive that Tom Brady's amazing, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I would imagine that Pele or... Maradona or any one of the soccer players you want to talk about was... I don't think anybody's ever dominated their sport like Tiger-dominated golf. You know, I was watching his
1: uh, Golf Digest. Uh, I'm taking It's like an eight-part series. Mm -hmm. And he's just giving tips on short game, putting, driver, um, his preparation, equipment, all of that. And I'm taking my time through it because there's so much... So many gems there. Oh, yeah. And... It's it's just uh, amazing to hear him talk about fluidity. You know, it's like, well, I really don't have uh, one way of doing things. I don't have my hips turning. You know, I use like you said, he feels the last thing that is touching is the club, is his hands. So he feels everything with his hands. He says, "Well, I got ten different shots. Is how do you want it? (laughs) You know, around the green, (laughs) like you know, hit the fade. You can hit the chip. You can hit the." uh, the pitch, he's uh, using the six irons, uh, five irons around the greens. I'm like, what? You use that? I'm thinking, all I use is my 54.
0: He did it know you could use
1: your six iron around the greens. Yeah. So think?
0: I talked to Stevie, his caddy, a mm. long time ago. And he said that when Tiger hit chips or the green was breaking right to left, uh-huh. Tiger would intentionally fade or slice spin his chip to deaden the ball because it would make it kind of curve up the hill Uh and it would kill it. So anytime he needed to make sure the ball stopped, he would work the ball against the slope to kill it. So he would actually draw chips and fade chips depending on the slope and where the pin was. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I've never thought about. Curving a chip, chip. in my <laughs> right, life. Dude. I'm like, what? Curving and he's like, a chip? He said he worked, the, he worked the ball in every shot. I.
1: I mean, that's unreal. I just want to get it up and down. <laughs> I I don't, to, curving a chip? He Steve,
0: I think I'm going to fade this chip in there. <laughs> fading a chip. <laughs> I'm okay. Those are the kind of things that I've always wondered if he's just saying to make freak people out or if he's really <laughs> he that good. But he, he demonstrated. I've watched, obviously, a ton of Tiger. He's he's demonstrated that he he definitely would work the slopes, and he worked the ball against the slope to deaden it.
1: Wow. Man,
0: that's, 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 that's phenomenal. That's talent, baby. That is talent. that is talent. That is talent. That is talent. One of my other passions and part of what my show is about is the, the love of Food and wine, and I'm a big mm-hmm. wine guy. Mm-hmm. And of course, look at me—I love to eat. I haven't, haven't, haven't missed a meal. Haven't missed a meal in, in uh, 45 years, almost 46. Are you, you, do you like wine? You oh, I love one? wine. Big, what, what's your favorite? What's your favorite favorite well, region and favorite type of wine?
1: It's uh, it's changed through the years. I used to be a huge. Well, used to. I still am. Uh, but um, huge cab guy. Um, love um. Uh, California Reds, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Cayman Special Select, uh, Silver Oak, uh, Duckhorn. Um, there are a few French wines that I like. But now um, I'm liking the Pinots a lot more, you know, Etude mm-hmm. or Miomi, especially during the fall. Yeah. Because it's like right in that sweet spot of cool but still warm enough that you can wear shorts and a nice sweatshirt. A nice Pinot by a fireplace is perfect. Oh, before yeah. we hit into the fall, then I hit the more robust yeah. uh, Cabernets. But um, that's that's probably my
0: favorite right now that I that I'm on. You know, Maomi's yeah. an interesting wine because it gets a lot of criticism because it's so popular. Yeah, but do you? Kn- this is interesting. It's different. Like first time you had it, it was so. Pro- it was a different Pinot. Uh huh. It has it's it's got a it's got a little more backbone and it. it's got a little more. Yeah, in it.
1: it's it, it's it, it's a hybrid of a cabernet and a lighter red. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So
0: what is in it? What to be called a pinot in California, it has to have at least eighty percent pinot. So it's it's seventeen percent syrah. Ah, that's what gives it the body and the kick. I see. So the pinot, the true pinot lovers, which are the ones that you're always. They're always kind of barking about, uh-huh. oh, that Mayomi sucks. It doesn't count. It's because the reason why it's artificially bigger in their mind is because it's got ceramics in it.
1: I see. So it's not a true Pinot. It's really not a true nice.
0: Pinot, but I love it.
1: Do you like um, a Molly Duker?
0: Uh, like the Enchanted Saras?
1: Path. Enchanted Path. Have you had that one? I have not had that one. Though. Oh, Enchanted Path is great. It's a it's an um, Australian. Yeah, uh, it's the twist off cap, but yeah. it's, it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, they do a great job. Yes,
1: they do. Oh, that's one of my favorites. I mean, especially again, this time of year is my favorite because it has like a nice wood, oaky taste mm-hmm. to it, and it's it's chilled just right. It's it's nothing better than that. Nothing I better than that. A nice. Bison steak, uh-huh. you know, medium oh, yeah. well, with uh-huh. some some garlic mashed potatoes. So true. <laughs> so true.
0: So I've loved wine from all over the world. I'm a I'm a huge wine lover. I I, I fell in love with wine at Mississippi State. We had a wine appreciation class, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of steered me. And I got a chance to taste all the regions. And I immediately fell in love with the the bigness of like Australian Shiraz. Yeah. And then quickly went to Napa cabs and evolved into Bordeaux and yep. whatever. And then you start to once you start to have a, a dabble in everything, you start to realize you're almost like a, a wine for the season. Yeah, exactly. You know. And so I I love Spanish Spanish wines and I love mm-hmm. Italian wines because they're really good with food. And Napa wines, like especially the cabs, you can drink them by themselves with food.
1: It's a food
0: unto itself. It a is. good a
1: good bottle of wine, it's food. That's right. It's not a drink.
0: It's that's, food. That's exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly that's right. Like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, when I think of Napa so Valley. So
1: what are you what are you currently drinking? What would you recommend? Well, that's, that's like,
0: well like, so I, I was like I'll step you through the world. Okay. So mm-hmm. like if I'm going to Napa Valley, you know, I like some of the classic ones like Stag's Leap Cast twenty three. Yes sir. Joseph Phelps insignia. Mm-hmm. And for for me, Schaefer Hillside Select is yeah. so good. Mm-hmm. It's it's spectacular. the The Pinots I love Willamette Valley mm-hmm. Pinots in Oregon. Oh um, yeah, or any Evans, or any Oregon Pinot. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Oh, Domaine it, Serene, Evanstad Reserve. Yes, phenomenal. Uh, I love the Spanish wines. I like Tempranillo. Mm-hmm. I like Never R- had Ribera del Duero is a region there that's phenomenal. It's got a little bit of Grenache, a little bit of Tempranillo. Awesome. Um, Italian wines. I love Italian wines. Italian wines are more acidic than most, so they Mm -hmm. go great with foods with fatty, like, sauces and or fatty meats. That makes sense. Like, Barolo's, like, uh, uh, Barolo's my wine that I talk about all the time, is the one that I forget to pull out when somebody's coming over, Mm -hmm. that I want to blow somebody's mind with because it's easy for me to go and grab... Uh, a nice arsenal of Bordeaux that I have yes. Or like the big name Cabernet's out of Napa But then like I'll be sifting through I'll be re- reorganizing my wine cellar and I'm like, damn it, I forgot about that Barolo <laughs> I love Barolo and Brunello I've had some amazing Syrahs I've had Penfold's Grange. have you ever had Penfold's? Been? Yeah, I have. Oh, that's a good goodness, one That, that, is, that is, is excellent. so good Yes And Chilean wine, uh, Don Melcher, yes. uh, Their Cabernet yes. Reserva is phenomenal Argentinian, Argentinian Malbec Mm-hmm. It's so good So like I've dabbled in them all And yeah. really my One of my all time favorite wines Is from South Africa The golfer Ernie Ells Is a big wine guy too And he s- Stole the number one And stole We just took him from The number one winery In South Africa To his own And it is Absolutely As good as anybody's wine Really It's so good It's,
1: it's uh, Norman's own it's, it's Ernie Ells Ernie Ells Ernie, Ernie, Ernie,
0: Ernie Ells' is proprietary blend And it's, a, it's, it's Where can it's, you get it? You can get it here in Nashville. Okay. Right, bit, you know, red right over here. I might here. have to go check it out. It is so good, and it's done in a Bordeaux style, so it's a ah. blend of Cab, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, and um, Malbec. And it's mostly Cab, like 72% Cab, and then the other 20% are just scattered across the other yeah. four grapes. Yeah, So good, and it has a very distinct – because, you know, Stellenbosch in South Africa has got the red, the red soil. Mm. You can actually taste – that in the soil, the one. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. It's, well, <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and of course, like I said, I've not missed a meal in 46 years. So, I mean, I love steak, but I love Italian food. And I love, mm-hmm. I just don't like liver. I don't like there lima beans. And I do not like cauliflower. But other than I, that, cauliflower is not bad, man. I can't do it. it.
1: Cauliflower <laughs> is a good deal.
0: I, I love, I love cauliflower. The liver, it can't do it. Can't do liver. Yeah, because it's impossible. You can't do liver. Well, final question for you. You got your, your dream foursome on what golf course? Who are you going to play with oh, and what golf course you want to play?
1: Wow. Oh, man. There's so many courses that I have. I mean, I'm, I am really literally new a new passion for golf mm-hmm. because, number one, it's, it allows me to be athletic but also add in the intellectual side, like mm-hmm. chess yeah. and course management decisions is such an exquisite game it really is it, it really is such a golf you a quality of life like just to go out there hit balls for hours and to go play and have conversation and style and all of that um, I just I just love it um that being said wow I would have to say I enjoy playing with Jerome Bettis He's a phenomenal golfer. Really? He's really inspired me to play a lot more. You know, it's, hey, you got to get involved over like the last 15 years. But I've been busy doing other things with mm-hmm. my business, everything, trying to get to the ground and so forth. But now I have some time to play. So I would say uh, Band in Dunes would love to go play that with myself, Jerome, Tiger, and Brooks
0: I love that. (laughs) If you've never been to Bandon Dunes? Never been. But I'm going to tell you something. It's the greatest golf destination anywhere. Really? That's that's all I've heard. I've heard that. So I tell people all the time, if I get one round of golf to play the rest of my life, I'm going to play at Cypress Point. Mm. But if you're going to give me a whole weekend, I'm going to Bandon Dunes. Bandon Dunes. It's literally, there's a handful of beautiful things. When you get there, your cell phone doesn't work. You are so off the grid they can't find you. <laughs> <laughs> so your cell phone won't work. There are five of the top ten public golf courses in the world on that mm. one site. Mm. You get there, you can either stay in the villa, there's a hotel right by the, the band the original golf course band and dunes. Their buses are never late. The food and their and the like the pubs and the wine and the cigars that they have it's it's the guy's paradise oh my God. phone doesn't work great wine great beer great whiskeys great food great golf nothing's ever late and at night they have this gigantic putting course right outside the hotel and you gamble and smoke cigars and drink wine and you're having the greatest time in your life you're like i'm getting a little tired and like, it's two ten. You're like, oh, my God. And you are got to get 36 more in tomorrow. Right, Hell, right, was right, Four and a half hours of sleep. Right. It's It's magic. They have done something there. So, like, once again, it's the journey to get there because uh-huh. you, like, you can't get there from here. Right, that's <laughs> what I hear. It's, you can literally get to Ireland faster. It, it, wow. You can't. Unless you have your own private jet. It's like... From here to Vegas, Vegas to Portland, Portland to Coos Bay, Coos Bay, somebody comes pick you up, drives you 40 minutes to the resort, boom, you're there. Oh, my gosh. For me, the two times I've been there, I, I, it took me 12 hours and 13 hours. It's a, it's a day. He's been the
1: whole day just getting there. Yeah, and yeah. for me,
0: when I went to, I've played in two professional events in Ireland, it mm-hmm. was like 11 hours. So, like, I could have been in Ireland and hitting balls already. You're by already, <laughs> by, by the time you get to right. Band Dunes. Yeah, so it's, uh, but it is magic. And yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like to be with two of the most mentally strong golfers yeah. ever. And obviously talented, but like, I would imagine for you to be able to listen to what they think about and then relate it to what it is that you think, thought about at your prime, you you'd gain a whole new appreciation for yourself and them because of how many things... Are bizarrely different and exactly the same simultaneously. Exactly,
1: exactly. I don't know if they would be able to tolerate my game. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I mean they'll be. A, I, mean, a state, Eddie, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, temporary state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm working. I'm virtual. I'm, I'm working. Oh man, I, I, every night I'm doing something golf related. Every single night, whether it's wrist, uh, my my uh, working my plane, mm-hmm. working on coming through the ball, and you know what was interesting. Is I was watching some a video and somebody was like, "Was well, this like you It's like throwing the ball underhand. That's the same kind of feeling." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Dang!" Because I, I, it, it forces you to get clear your hips and to come all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that." And I did it at the golf course yesterday. And I was hitting it pretty pretty well, mm-hmm. so I'm going to stay in that vein yeah. in terms
0: of working on on the swing. So the, that's an interesting point. So if you're talking about hitting a driver, mm-hmm. one of the easiest visuals is if you if I was going to ask you to throw a softball as high into the air as you could from your golf setup, what would you do? And you make this really big wind up, mm-hmm. and then you'd you'd unwind and you'd work under with your right shoulder to throw the ball up as high as you possibly could or launch the ball. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It's just the same thing. It's a very powerful drill. Like we here in, in this indoor studio, we would throw a Nerf ball up into the ceiling as, with as much force as you could and then we'd videotape you doing yourself doing it and you'd see you're like going, "Oh my god." It looks almost identical, except I don't have two hands on the Nerf ball. I only have one hand on it. But you'd see your hips open up. You'd see your chest pull your right arm through. You'd throw it up into the air, and you'd see the release of your right arm. It's almost exactly the same. Really? Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're gonna, you're, you're,
0: I'm going to have to get you in here and put the buff and shine kit on you because there's no chance that you can't become really good in a short amount of time. Man,
1: I, I, that would be phenomenal. My my goal is is I want to be a scratch golfer.
0: Well, you can I mean that. listen
1: I, I'm shooting for the moon yeah. and if I miss I'll be among the stars that's right but that's that's my goal is to be a scratch golfer because I heard that Marshall Falk played nine holes somewhere Jerome was telling me this, he was five under and I was like if he can do that
0: I I'm going to do that. that I can't <laughs> love <it. laughs> well, I love it well Eddie I can't yeah. thank you enough for taking the time out of your schedule Absolutely. to come here and join me on my, on my show thanks for sharing all your wisdom and life Uh, what it takes to be great, what it takes to persevere, and what it takes to enjoy it. I can't thank you enough, but I appreciate it. Appreciate you, man. Thank Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Callaway isn't just pushing the boundaries of driver technology. They're pushing ball speed further than humanly possible. The new epic flash driver with flash face technology features Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. By harnessing this power, Callaway was able to create, test, and refine over 15,000 different faces to find the absolute fastest one. The way speed is created has been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI.